I'm not one to watch um, too much sports, but you know, uh, I love the, the great sports highlight every now and then. And maybe one of the greatest ones that I've seen recently is when this boxer, I think he was a world champion, or maybe is a world champion, uh, he was fighting an opponent in the ring, and he goes for an uppercut, right? So he shifts his body, he ducks down a little bit, I'm not that familiar with boxing, but you know, he dips down, and he wants to land this devastating uppercut, which is supposed to go right to the chin. And uh, just as he does that, his opponent backs up or dodges the punch somehow, and the guy, you know, a heavyweight, ends up punching himself in the face. I don't know what happened in terms of the end. I only saw the highlight, but regardless, I mean, that scene right there is somewhat funny. This guy with throwing all of his weight behind that punch doesn't land squarely against his opponent, whom he's wanting to destroy, but he lands that punch on himself to his own detriment. Well, in this morning's passage from Acts chapter 8, Yes, that introduction is relevant. <laughs> we see that the, the people who are persecuting the church, they lead an all-out assault on the church. But they end up punching themselves in the face. We see today that out of a very bad situation, actually, according to God's providence, comes a lot of good. We see this in our passage today. Great persecution. Here's the main idea here. Great persecution for Christ leads to greater preaching of Christ. Greater persecution for Christ leads to greater preaching for Christ. At least that's what we see here in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 1 to 8. I invite you to turn there with me now. There's a lot of persecution going on of Christians in the book of Acts, as one would expect, right? In the Gospels, we know that Christ himself had been crucified, hung on the cross for sin, and then he got up from the dead three days later, proving to all that sin and Satan did not have mastery over him. In the book of Acts, right, right after the resurrection, Christ sends out his disciples to preach the good news that salvation is found in his name and in his name alone. The problem is the folks who killed Jesus are right there. They're still right there. And just as the leaders of Israel attacked and killed Jesus, so they do the same to his disciples as we've been looking at in the last chapter, Acts chapter 7. We see that a disciple named Stephen was arrested. He was interrogated. He was falsely accused just like Christ was. And though the situation goes from bad to worse so quickly, in it all, Stephen, we see, is a faithful follower of Christ and a faithful witness to Christ, even in his death, just like Jesus he entrusts himself to God. Just as Christ entrusted himself to the Father, Stephen entrusts himself to Christ. Just as Christ prays to the Father that the Father would forgive the sinners for they know not what they do, so Stephen prays that Christ would not hold his persecutor's sins against them. Of course, sadly, we know that persecution for Christ does not stop in Acts chapter 7 against Stephen. It just continues to go on. It actually increases. But you know what else increases? Just as Christ promised to build his church, the witness to Christ actually increases as well, even in the midst of persecution. And that's what we see here today in Acts chapter 8. So again, the main idea, great persecution leads to greater preaching. And then let me add on another sentence. And then in what might seem like a strange turn of events, God uses this persecution against the very persecutors. 
in order to grow the church they tried to silence. And that's the own punch in the face that they receive here. So go ahead and look at Acts chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, it's in your bulletin, but if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to go ahead and turn there so that way um, you know you can see what's going on around the context. But you go ahead and look there in the middle of chapter or sorry, the middle of verse 1 of chapter 8. By the way, the verses, they weren't there in the original manuscripts. The verses were added in later. You know, just imagine 1,500 years later after Jesus arrived. You know, for our benefit, who would understand the Bible, the verses were helpfully put in there. And um, so that's why you see that verse 1, you kind of have like the ending of what came, like the execution of Stephen. It ends there, 8-1, and Saul approved of his execution. That's supposed to be like a break And then next you read there. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. The first thing that we see after the death of Stephen is that an even greater persecution for the gospel erupts in Jerusalem. This is point number one, greater persecution for the gospel, greater persecution for the gospel. The section opens up with this, you know, ominous, gloomy description of the days, really, the period of time or the day that the church went into a very heavy persecution. Look there in chapter four. Uh, sorry, verse four. And there arose on that day. You were kind of entering into the, the, that time there by this time reference. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. You guys know, I'm sure, what uh, persecution is. Just imagine when one is harassed for the faith and attacked for their faith in Christ. Now, some of us. You know, we, we, we know that it's somewhat challenging to imagine and to envision what this persecution looked like given the religious freedom that we have today in this country. Praise the Lord for that. But that said, you know, we hope that the persecuted church would be on our minds and hearts regularly, you know, in the course of our own life as a church. Um, in the vast majority of our pastoral prayers, you know, the prayer right before the sermon, we hear about and pray for the persecuted church whether it be for a particular pastor, a particular church, like we prayed this morning, or for a particular country, and then the Christians in that country. And of course, those we pray for, they are representatives of the millions of Christians who are oppressed for Jesus Christ today. And it can be a great time for us, as Hebrews chapter 13.3 says... Remember those who are in prison for Christ as though we were in prison with them. And so we pray that, you know, Christ would comfort them in the midst of their sufferings. We pray that he would strengthen them for their own faithfulness to preach the gospel, to evangelize, to go on meeting. We pray that God would continue to sustain them in the strength of Jesus Christ. We pray also that they too will be our examples should we ever be called to such suffering. We pray for that 
you know, those types of things and then pray those things for us probably at least 30 times out of the year when we gather. And hopefully this can be an encouraging time for you guys because hearing about other Christians, right, your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, hearing about their situations gets us out of our own situation and can actually help us appreciate our situation. It can, for example, enlarge in our hearts towards our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in chains for the gospel, who are counting the cost of what it looks like to follow Jesus in very real and tangible ways, which goes beyond like, I might not get promoted at work if people find out I'm a Christian. We're talking about persecution, beatings, being disowned, socially ostracized, and on and on. So hearing about these situations, right, it reminds us that suffering for Christ is actually the very normal situation for Christians throughout time and history and places. And it also helps us be more appreciative of our situation, not so that we might relax, given the freedom we have in Christ, and just kind of shut up and enjoy the freedoms we have. Not, not like that. I mean, it helps us maybe seize the very opportunities we have for Christ, knowing that He has blessed us with such freedom here to go on to speak the gospel. I hope that's how you see you know, the information that we give you on Sunday mornings and the things that we pray about on Sunday mornings in your own lives. It's not supposed to be something that we merely hear for a few seconds and then just go on living. So the question is, is, do you have your brothers and sisters who are in chains for the gospel? Do you have them on your minds as well? The persecution that we hear about going on in the world today is similar to what was going on back then, back in Jerusalem. And you know, thinking about their context, who was leading this persecution? It's a man named Saul. We were introduced to this man named Saul last week, according to the first half, to, first half of Acts chapter 8, verse 1. What is he doing there? He is approving of Saul's execution. Look there, he's approving of Saul's, of Stephen's execution. Right? And then we know from a previous passage right before, uh, we know that as people were, were lynch-mobbing Stephen... And then about to stone him, right? The people there were taking off their outer garments and laying it at the feet of Saul. Why were they laying it at the feet of Saul? Was it because he's, you know, the, the mere errand boy? Uh, it's all he's good for, looking after people's property? No. It seems by all accounts that he is actually one of the leaders of this persecution. He was leading in this rage against Christ and his Christians. And we get to see some of this rage of Paul and just what kind of person he is, right? You look at this great persecution, verse 3, what is he doing? Look there. He is ravaging the church, destroying it. He's entering house after house, dragging off not just the men, but also the women, and then committing them to prison. This is serious. Go ahead and look there at chapter 9, verse 1. Go ahead and look there. You see more of his character. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, which was a far-off place, basically, so that if he found any of them belonging to the way or Christianity, men or women, doesn't really matter, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He goes with these, essentially, arrest warrants, persecution warrants, to go out, not to spread the gospel, but to kill it. Bring them back to Jerusalem so that he might imprison them. He is all in, fully committed to making sure that these Christians' lives are made a living hell. 
And you can very much imagine him to be something like an extension of Satan's fury. An extension of Satan's fury. Can I ask somebody, Nicholas, where are you? Can you come and um, fold this up? That way the wind can just blow right through it. Thanks, man. And as he unleashes this rage against the church, we see what happens. Look there again in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Right? Jerusalem was on a hill, so then the, 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 the church there, they get scattered throughout the surrounding regions. If you have Jerusalem right here, then they get sprout south Judea, and then you got Samaria to the north. Can you imagine Christian facing this extension of Satan's fury? And then on top of that, having to leave the city because your lives are in danger. There's a lot at stake here for those who identify with Jesus. Again, it's not just the men, it's also the women. So everybody here can identify what it might look like to have to leave the city. Even if you're carrying your little babies with you, you've got to scatter. It's not hard to imagine how fearful the Christians could have been, might have been, as they left the city of Jerusalem. And maybe, you know, if you put yourself in that situation, your Jesus had just been crucified, hung on a cross and left to die. Stephen had just been destroyed, his head cracked open with a bunch of stones. You know, we can put ourselves in their situation. Maybe we'd leave Jerusalem saying, they got in trouble for identifying with Jesus, therefore we should not identify with Jesus. And though none of us here face this kind of persecution for the gospel, insofar as I know, Maybe you face some sort of opposition in your own family or your own workplace. Maybe being known as a Christian may lead to, you know, not getting promoted as quickly as others, or maybe not at all. Or maybe you face social ostracism in your family for being a Christian, and you therefore are afraid to speak of Christ the Lord. I remember being in my young 20s, you know, kind of entering into adulthood, and I remember meeting this one brother at the church who was working for the FBI, and... Because of various circumstances, he stood for Christ, and that auto automatically meant right there, right then, that he would not advance, given the circumstances, he would not advance as quickly as others. Same thing happened with a former pastor here, who was a former detective for the LAPD. He knew that for standing for Christ in this one situation would cost him, and it did. Maybe this is your guy's situation. You know, friends, that if you experience such fear... In the moment there. And, and it leads you to shut up about the gospel. You know, guys, that in that fear, Satan has victory. There are a lot of number of ways in which Satan attacks, right? We've seen it here in the book of Acts already. We've seen that there he attacks by, you know, capitalizing on character issues in the church. And so what happens if these character issues in the church are not addressed? Well, people might think that Jesus is holy. Jesus, doesn't, Jesus is not holy. They might think Jesus doesn't really care about these types of things. Or you can think about the potential division that Satan might want to capitalize on in Acts chapter 6. How does Satan win there if people aren't taking care of those issues? People might say, well, Christians aren't united, meaning God and his people aren't united, which means the persons in the Trinity, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit, they are not united, so who really cares? We can just live in this division. And that's a poor testimony of God. And we see here this attack from the outside and this persecution. How does Satan get the victory with persecution? It's if you, Christian, stay silent about the good news of Jesus. 
Jesus gives us the mission to bring and herald this good news, right, to others, to the ends of the earth. And Satan seems to win. He seems to win. We know who always wins. God always wins. But Satan seems to win if we stay silent about our Christ. This is a big deal. It makes us ask some questions. When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? I mean, actually shared it. I don't mean merely mention that I go to church on Sundays. Merely mention, I'm a Christian. Or maybe you slip in the word God here and maybe Jesus here. Or maybe you, you know, shine your cross a little bit in front of somebody's face. I'm talking about actually sitting down with someone to share the gospel with them. That family member, that coworker, Actually explaining to them who Jesus is and why he matters in our lives. Christian, I wonder for you, in what situations are you tempted to stay silent about Christ out of fear. I'm not implying in these questions, you know, that, that, the, that the only faithful Christian is a Christian who talks nonstop about Jesus, even if you get fired for your job or whatever it is, even if your life is in danger. That's not quite what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just trying to help you identify where you run from talking about Christ out of fear. Out of fear. Are there people you shy away from sharing Jesus with because you are afraid that you might fall out of favor with them in particular. Think about it now. When was the last time you shared the gospel with your parents who don't believe? Your siblings. Maybe your siblings and parents that you so desire that you want to please. Maybe the coworkers. Think about your coworkers, right? When you spend time eating lunch with them, after hours, after work, maybe at birthday parties, etc. If your answer is, actually, I have never shared the gospel with them, then you, we all need to be asking the question, why? Why am I silent? It could be because of fear, right? Maybe you fear, again, the fallout. These are things that you want to be talking with your church members. I don't know a single person that does not struggle with the fear of man to some degree. And so, Christian, if you know you shy away from evangelizing out of fear, then I say, let's just work on it, right? We've all been there. And we can work on it in, in different ways. We can go at it from different angles. Angles that involve, let's say, recapturing the worthiness of Jesus Christ, the Lord, in your own eyes. We can work at it from the angle of the love of God. Revealed to all of his created people that they too would repent of their sins and believe. And maybe think about why you don't want other people to have that. You can think about it this way. If we know that sin and Satan and death for sin will come for us all at some point in time. Let's speak about that being like the metaphorical bus that's going down the street. And all of us are just kind of lined up. We just so happen by God's providence to be lined up with other people. By God's providence that we might witness to them. We know that when, when, as we continue on this road that at some point in time we will get hit, no doubt, and be taken out by death for sin. Consequence, right? Not sharing the gospel is like saying, hey, how's it going? Just continue on your way. Let's talk about other things like all the things we love to eat, which, hey, I love to eat. Let's talk about all the other things we love to do, like jujitsu and hobbies. But, hey, you just go on your way. And you know exactly what's going to happen to them. 
Why would we not want to hold out the good news to see them saved if God has placed them in our lives? Why would we not speak about the worthy God amongst all the things that people could count worthy? Why not speak about Christ the Lord who is worthy of all praise and worthy of all, all, all of our honor and our worship? God has, in fact, given us such a great task to share the gospel with others that they too would be reconciled with God. And even though death is to come, we know that one day we'll be, we will be raised in Christ, reconciled to God, saved from our sins. Now, in relation to why you might not share, maybe it's an issue of training and confidence, right, in knowing the Bible. Maybe you are a baby Christian, and you just think like, man, I believe Jesus. I definitely want to do that. How do I do that? Great. Well, let's, let's think about this training for a little bit. Um, you want to know <clears throat> these four main ideas when sharing the gospel, right? If you're going to share the gospel, we want you to know these fa- four main like plot points, so to speak. And if you memorize them, you will be incredibly helped by them, okay? Number one is God. We're just going to explain the gospel here. Number one is God. You might think, where do I start in sharing the gospel with people? Well, start with God, right? In the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, 1, we got God going on. So you, who is this God? Well, God has created everybody. He's created us to be in a relationship with him. He's made us to be in a perfect relationship. And he did so in the beginning. There was no sin there in the beginning. That's God. He made, uh, he made us to be in a relationship with him. Next plot point, you got man. Man. Designed to worship him, but we don't want God. We say we'd rather do things our own way. And so forget God and his rules and whatnot and his love. I'm going to determine for myself what is right and what is wrong, what gives me pleasure and what doesn't. I'm going to pursue what I want to do. And in effect, that is de-godding God, as one likes to say. It's dethroning God, and we put ourselves there in that throne. And that is sin. Man has sinned against God. The Bible says that this is treason, punishable, of course, as God is king. It's punishable by death. That's the problem, right? So we got God, we got man, and then we come to Christ. God sees our problem, man's problem, and then God provides the solution that is Christ. Christ fulfills all of God's demands. He lives the righteous life we should have. He dies on the cross for us, for his people, so that we might never have to face eternal death and judgment. Because he takes it on himself. Where we sin, Christ dies as our substitute. Where we deserve judgment, God sets forward his son so that Christ would do that. And for the joy set before him, the Bible says Christ went to the cross. In him there is salvation. In him we know the love of God. In him we are reconciled to God. In him we know the forgiveness of God. In Christ we are adopted into God's family. And God wants us in his family. In him there is salvation. And the book of Acts says that there is no name under heaven by which man must be saved except Christ alone. The fourth thing there is response. We got God, man, Christ, response. If you've never shared the gospel, I hope you're writing these things down. The fourth is response. God does not say, hey, you don't, if you hate me, go ahead, you're in heaven. Go ahead, we're reconciled. No, that's not how it works. You know that that's not how it works in your own lives. And that's not how it works with God. Because God is the one who made us. He says that all who turn from their sins and believe will be reconciled to him, welcomed into his family. And so we are all, you, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, you are called to repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and you will be saved. Praise God for that. That is God, man, Christ, response.
That right there is the gospel. This is the good news that the church was called to take to the ends of the earth, calling all to turn from their sins and be saved, reconciled to God, forgiven, and to know your own maker. So Christian, when do you shy away from holding out Christ to others? Now again, I don't want to imply that the Christian needs to evangelize someone in every waking moment of their lives to be a faithful Christian. We don't see Jesus doing that. We don't see the apostles doing that. Nor do I want to imply that the Christian should never seek to get out of a dangerous situation. Okay, guys? Don't think that faithfulness always equals dying at any given point in time for the sake of the gospel. Some might say that fleeing a dangerous situation is always wrong. But frankly, I disagree. Because even as we go through the book of Acts, Paul himself is going away from difficult situations. Jesus himself says, at some point in time, if the people disagree, then feel free and move on. So it just simply is not the case that entering, like seeking to enter, you know, let's say... uh, Suffering like your lives are in danger is always the godly thing. That is certainly not the case. It may be the case, but it is certainly not always the case. Certainly much more complicated than that. I would want to know the circumstance for why a person left the dangerous situation. That's more telling. What's the circumstance for why the person left or found, thought that they had to leave? Right? These Christians were persecuted because they identified with Jesus They identified, or sorry, they left because they identified with Jesus. They already took big risks to stand with Christ and other Christians, right? Think about it. Jesus was crucified by the authorities of Israel, together with the Roman leaders. And yet here these Jews are willing to be baptized for Christ. And in their baptism, which we've read of previously, they publicly declare their allegiance to the crucified and resurrected Jesus testifying to all that they have been united with him in his death to sin and also united with him in his resurrection to new life. It's because of their stand for Christ that Saul then and others set their sights on them. So we can assume that they are more bold than fearful. And because the great persecution arose, they left. Again, leaving does not always mean fear, though it certainly might. So it's better to look not at merely leaving or staying as the indicator of godliness. And then on top of that, a better indicator is whether the one who leaves on account of Christ is willing to still speak about him. That's the better indicator. Whether the one who leaves on account of Christ is willing to still speak about him. Right, so if you are harassed because you claim Christ and then, and then you are harassed, you're attacked, and then you leave, but you're still willing to speak about Jesus no matter where you go? That's awesome. That's super encouraging. You are in the ranks of the apostles and other Christians throughout history who for various reasons have had to flee, but they never stopped speaking about their Jesus. They continued singing the song of the gospel to themselves and to others even in the suffering, the next suffering, even in their sojourning. That's exactly what these Christians do. Look at what they do in their scattering. Verse 4. Verse 4. They went about, it says, preaching the word. They don't lean into fear because of persecution. Rather, they lean into faithfulness. They don't lean into fear. They lean into faithfulness. This brings us to point number two. 
In God's providence, this great persecution for the gospel leads to a great spread of the gospel. Point number two leads to a greater spread of the gospel. Do you notice who it is that is scattered here? It's actually not the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. It seems the authorities were still a little fearful of persecuting the apostles, the leaders of this movement. But when it came to the regular Christian, let's say, the regular Christian, I know some of us tend to put the apostles on a pedestal. So I'm putting regular in air quotes, these regular Christians, the apostles too are regular Christians, we know that. These regular people, the council had no problem persecuting them. It's really encouraging that these Christians could not be held back. They went on sharing, speaking, evangelizing, preaching the word. They heralded the word. Again, the temptation is to somehow think that only the ones who could ever have courage to stand for Christ in persecution are the apostles. That's simply not true. We see this with Stephen. The same goes with these Christians here. They, they herald the gospel wherever they go. I hope you guys are encouraged by this. You don't have to have a college degree to successfully stand for Jesus, right? To know and to share the greatest knowledge that could ever be. You don't need a college degree. You don't even need a high school degree. You don't even have to go to junior high to do this. You don't have to have a job that all of your friends envy in order to be faithful to your king and serve in his kingdom. You don't have to be the best looking or have a certain net worth or come from a certain social status to represent the most glorious person there is, that is Christ. To stand for Christ, you need only believe. You need only believe and be able to speak or sign or write or communicate. If you're a Christian, we can all stand for Jesus Christ. In fact, Christ calls you Christian to stand. And guess what? He promises to be with our mouths. He promises to be with our minds and with our hearts to strengthen us for the task of sharing the word of the gospel in the spirit. God's chosen instrument to save souls all by God's design and all by his sovereignty. As the word goes out, we know his spirit does as well, gathering people into his church just as he has promised. These regular people, so to speak, which we know the apostles are as well. These guys are just regular people, but they're empowered by an awesome, powerful Christ. And on account of that, they could not be held back because they had all that they needed, the word of Christ and the spirit of Christ. And so wherever they had to scatter, the gospel was certainly going with them. Think for a moment about um, if you were one of the leaders there in the council of Israel. And you read what happens, right? Let's say, let's say you come to read about what's going on. And you come to find out here what's going on as you see the people scattering. This must have frustrated the council so much. In God's providence, right? They are the ones who launched this great persecution in effort to destroy the church. And it goes on and causes an unanticipated shockwave that led not to the final destruction of the church, but actually the very birth of the church in Judea and Samaria. So I want you to turn back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is why it's useful to have your Bible. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is kind of the theme verse of the book of Acts. You guys remember this? Jesus says before he, this is after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, right before his ascension, he gives them this mission, this charge. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem 
and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What's that second location there? We've got Jerusalem. We've looked at that already in the book of Acts. Now, how does the gospel go out to Judea and all Samaria here? You notice that it is on account of the council's persecution? What a great turn of events. Great persecution on account of the gospel leads to a greater preaching of the gospel. And where the council sought to destroy the church, just like that boxer, boxer sought to land that uppercut right square on that, in his opponent's face, God sees all of their efforts and uses it to the persecutor's detriment. And he causes the birth of the church in Judea and Samaria. And he, sees, he oversees there the multiplication of the church. They meant persecution for evil. But in God's providence, their own effort is used against them, all by God's will. And the persecution leads to great gospel growth. Again, imagine yourself coming across this written account, and you're part of the council there. In all of your efforts to silence the Christians in one city, gives birth to churches in so many others. Would not God be overseeing everything, saying, Are not my ways so much higher than man's? Look what happens there in verse 5. The focus lands on Philip. You see, you see here God uses Philip in a unique way, a deacon of the church as that we met in chapter 5. We see there, verse 5, He proclaimed to them, the Samaritans, Christ. And then the council, right, right, they're reading this too. Eventually, maybe one day, this Jesus, this name just simply will not go away. And where we sought to destroy the church, what happens? God bears fruit. This Christ bears fruit from these faithful Christians who go around heralding the gospel. You looked at verse 6. The crowds in one accord, they paid attention to what is being said. They heard him. They saw the miracles God worked through him as God was making known to everyone there, first in Jerusalem, now in Judea and Samaria, that Christ is Lord over all. That's the whole point. In the exorcisms, what do they see? Jesus has power over the spiritual realm. In the healings of the lame and paralyzed, we see that Jesus has power over the physical realm. The point is that Jesus is really Lord over the universe, Lord over all. And there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved, made right with God and forgiven of their sin. I hope, Christian, this is encouraging to you. God used the faithfulness of these suffering Christians to bring about his plan of redemption. He's laying the foundation here, first in Jerusalem. And he uses here suffering Christians to lay the foundation of the church in Judea and Samaria. We'll look at this certainly in the rest of chapter 8. But in the rest of the book of Acts, what do we see? We see that the gospel goes to the end of the earth. As we've been seeing all throughout Acts, and, in, and again in today's passage, God is faithful to his promises. And he will fulfill his promises with Christians who remain faithful to what he has called us to do. Church, you realize that you are not called, right, to figure out when the church should go to Judea and Samaria. At least they were not. They were not called to figure out how to bring in the next stage, right, usher in God's next stage of salvation history. What were they, though, called to do? They were called to remain faithful to Jesus specifically in heralding the gospel wherever they went and in living their lives changed by the gospel. 
And so we too are reminded here, right here, right now, of our own call to faithfulness to Jesus, especially in evangelizing those that God would bring across our paths. It's true, we might not understand all that God is doing in the very moment, even if you guys are facing opposition. But friends, according to his promises, he will build his church and he is with us. I wonder, Christian, for you, you know, in your difficulties in evangelism, I wonder if you really embrace that. Because if you know that Christ is with you, why would you not sing of him wherever you go? Speak of him wherever you go. This means, Christians, that we can lean into faithfulness and not fear while we entrust ourselves to God that he would, according to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. So for those of you guys who are not sharing the gospel, perhaps you're, uh, or perhaps you are sharing the gospel, and then you are discouraged and you don't see fruit. To those who don't share, friends, let me encourage you. Christ is with you. Your Savior who died on the cross for you, He is with you. And as we've mentioned before, if He is not given, just as He has given Himself for you, certainly He will preserve you until the end where He meets you. He brings you face to face with Him. And in that we can lean. We all know that life is temporary. Our lives will all expire at some time. The faster we embrace that, the better evangelists I think we will be. If you don't see any fruit, let me encourage you to do this. Don't define success in terms of your Christianity and your evangelism as seeing fruit born. Don't define success as seeing fruit born. Define success by faithfulness to your calling. Define success by faithfulness to your calling. If we, if we define success as seeing people turn to Christ, right, the number of converts right before us, then wouldn't we say that Stephen, in his last ministry effort before the council, right before he gets stoned, wouldn't we just look at him and say, he's a failure. He is an absolute failure. Nobody came to Christ in that council right there, that, right then, in that moment. He is a failure. But, friends, if we take the Bible's definition of success, right, faithful to Jesus, no matter the circumstance, then Stephen is a lion for the faith. Though he saw no converts, right, with his own eyes, right there in his last sermon, he was undoubtedly used by God to bring about the conversion of so many in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, including perhaps the most well-known Christian in history, the one who oversaw Stephen's very own death, that is, Saul. This is Saul, as we're going to see in the future, the Saul who turns from his sin and then believes on Jesus Christ. This Saul, God renames Paul, Paul the Apostle, and, as, and then Paul goes on to give himself, or sorry, Jesus gives Paul the mission to bring the name of Christ to the ends of the earth. How's that for a turn of events? The Christ he so opposed becomes the one he seeks to magnify and preach to the ends of the earth. Christian, let me encourage you, if you are in fact discouraged, define success as faithfulness to the Lord and then trust him with the results that accord with his goodwill and be faithful just like these Christians were. Just as they knew Christ was with them, so wherever they went, they sang about Jesus Christ in the gospel. Let's pray together.
Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that faithfulness is ultimately dependent upon you. As you empower us, you strengthen us, you give us the words to speak, you give us the boldness, you give us your example. Father in heaven, Lord, we pray that you would help us follow in Christ's footsteps and in these believers' footsteps. That just as they were faithful to speak of you no matter where they went, Lord, we pray that we would be doing the same. Where we might face opposition and fear, Lord, we pray that you would help us recover, according to your word and the Spirit, a great vision of who you are. We pray, Lord, that we would know that just as you were with Abraham and so many, Moses and David, even in the midst of such difficulties, just as you, Father, were with your Son, Jesus Christ, in the garden and as he went to the cross. So, Lord Jesus, you are with us. Help us remember and hold fast to your promises that you will never leave us nor forsake us and that you have pledged your presence to the very end of the age. We pray, God, that First Baptist would be known to be a faithful church that speaks of the wonderful grace of God in Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.